Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. So good morning, everybody. Today is going to be Sea of Galilee Part 5. Again, how many? I don't know. We'll just keep going until we run out of material. A new picture in the background. We'll explain that one in a minute. Essentially, we've been working up to this lesson. So four weeks in a row, we've essentially talked about the same story. Jesus getting in a boat, going to the other side. There's a storm. He then meets the demon-possessed man, and God's mercy is on display in the Decapolis. And as we move forward then, the final thing is to say, okay, let's now talk Jonah. Because as you'll see today, the associations with, of that story with Jonah are remarkable, and there's a very difficult to interpret saying in the New Testament, the sign of Jonah. And so we're going to talk, what's that sign? How is the sign manifested? And there's one main one that we all know of, but there's some minor ones that scholars throw out there, like, well, these are also signs as well. So we're going to talk today, sign of Jonah. And we're going to connect this picture here, which is the disciples and Jesus get in a boat, they go to the other side, on their way, a windstorm kicks up, a squall, and the disciples, of course, cry out, Jesus stands up and stills the sea. So this is one depiction of Jesus and the disciples in the storm. Another one, and this is probably a more famous one, is Rembrandt. Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee is the name of that one from Rembrandt. And, of course, again, depicting the same scene. Jesus and his disciples crossing the sea to go to the other side, and the storm tries to stop them. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take this story here from Mark, and we're going to connect it to this right here, which is Jonah. Now, that is a depiction of Jonah and the belly of a whale, or at least the big fish, sorry. Some Bibles say whale, others say big fish, but a big fish spits Jonah out on the sea, and there's, we'll talk about Jonah today, but this is what we're going to do, is we're going to connect these two stories. So, the sign of Jonah, 
What is it? How do we understand Jonah and this story coming together? So in today in your Bible, we're going to be talking about the story from Mark, but we're actually not going to go read it. What I there's going to be one place in the New Testament that I actually do want you to look at, and that's in Luke. This is one of the places that Luke, that Luke writes the sign of Jonah. So if you want to open to Luke, you can. We're going to read the same thing in Matthew. I'm going to do it fairly quickly just to get through it, but you'll hear the same thing from Luke. So uh, Luke 11 will be one place that we'll read, and then you may want to stick a little piece of paper or maybe your thumb or something in the book of Jonah, because we're going to, at the very end, we're going to go read some out of Jonah. And Jonah is only two pages in your Bible. It's between Obadiah and Micah, and I know telling you it's between Obadiah doesn't help, because that's only one page. But Jonah, it, actually, if you find Amos or Micah, it's uh, between Amos and Micah. So Jonah is a very short story. We'll talk about that today. You'll see how it relates to chapter one in Jonah, and then we'll read chapter four, because that's really the main point of Jonah is chapter four. So that's where our Bible reading will come from today. So the main points, the past four weeks, we've looked at this story out of Mark. It starts in Mark 4.35, it goes all the way through Mark 5.20, and that is, let's go to the other side, they get in a boat, there's a storm, Jesus stills the sea, they end up in the Gentile area, they meet the demon-possessed man, that's what we looked at last week, and God's mercy is on display. As Jesus says, go tell them how the Lord had mercy on you. And because of that, the people start to believe in Jesus or recognize the God of Israel. So that's where we're our starting point. Then you have the sign of Jonah. We're going to talk about what is the sign, what do scholars view as the sign, and there's multiple answers, and they're all yes at the same time, so that's helpful. We'll compare the story of Jonah to the, our story in Mark. And then what we want to lo look at is, well, what exactly is the message of Jonah? What's the, what's the message of the book? Why was this book kept and read and so important beyond just the, the swallowing of the fish is what everybody knows about. All right, so that, those are our main points. We'll do a quick review. So the story goes, here's our map of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus does all of his ministry, well, almost all of it, over on the northwest corner of the lake. The religious Jews live there. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Gennesaret, Magdala. So Jesus and his disciples are on that side of the lake, and Jesus says, Let's get in the boat, and we go to the other side. And we talked the past few weeks. The other side of what? Well, it's the other side of everything. And where they end up landing is the Decapolis, the place you're not supposed to go. It's unclean. You stay away from all the pagan nonsense over there. So they head to the Decapolis. That's where the Gentiles live. And they land somewhere. The main polis, the main city, is called Hippos. And we don't know, there's a little village just to the north of that, and you can see on that map, they put Gergesa with a question mark. And a couple, two weeks ago, we talked about 
Why are they calling it Gergesa with a question mark? Now, last week, we noted something. As the story is told, and you get to, let's say you get to the point where Mark is actually writing to his first audience in Rome, and they notice that there's something going on in the story when a Latin word pops up, legion. So you have demon-possessed man, you have a madman, you have swine, which is, of course, the unclean animal, and you have legion, and legion is a Latin word. And so what we mentioned last week was what would likely be called to mind is this legion, the 10th legion of the imperial Roman army, their emblem was swine, was a, was a pig. And that 10th legion was central to the war that was fought from 66 AD to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. So by the time you get the first people reading this would see more symbolism in the story than even maybe the first people who heard about it after it happened. It's, boy, there's, there's a lot. It's a dynamic story, and there's a lot going on. So you have a story about the pagans, the Gentiles. Perhaps the, the demon-possessed man is representative of what happens when you follow those pagan gods, the madness that comes. Then you introduce Rome inside of that. And now you get the madness of Rome, and uh, what happens when you draw, you value people that are made in the image of God, but you push them out to the margins because they're not valuable enough. And there's a whole bunch inside of that that would show up to those very first readers of, of Mark, besides just swine are unclean, Decapolis unclean. As the story goes on, there's more and more symbolism added. So that was last week. They go to the other side. Now, what we need to do today is then connect that with the story of Jonah. So the sign of Jonah, there's three places in your Bible. Let me just, they're listed on your sheet. This phrase, sign of Jonah, shows up three times. We're going to look at two of them. It shows up in Matthew 12. It shows up another time in Matthew, which seems to be the same type of story going on. Matthew 16, and then Luke 11, 29. And you can read those, go back and read those later, but it only shows up three times, which means, one, it's significant. You have something throwing, showing up very few times. Well, we need to pay attention to that. The hard part is it only shows up a couple times. And so now we get, there's a lot of things we don't know, and then we can read into that, or maybe we shouldn't read into it. Or So there's a lot, it, this becomes, it's enigmatic, and it, that makes it difficult to actually pin down what the Bible's talking about, as we'll see here in a minute. So I want to do two things. We're going to look at Matthew 12 and then go to Luke. And I'm going to do Matthew a little bit faster because I really want to pay attention to the one in Luke. So the, we see the sign of Jonah, and the question we're asking is, what is the sign? So Matthew and Luke seem to tell us something a little bit different. So what I want to do is I'll read Matthew, and you all know this one, because this is the one most people will associate as the sign of Jonah, but I want to go pay attention, more attention to Luke. So Matthew says this, this is Matthew 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So there's this idea of seeing a sign. 
Verse 39, Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So right there is where Matthew puts that sign of the prophet Jonah. He adds the word prophet. All right, now what's the sign? Well, Matthew tells us this, and this is where most of us go. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a resurrection. And that is where most people go. When we hear the story, we think, aha, the sign is that Jesus resurrected. And that's true. But it's not the only sign. So there's a little bit, there's more to it going on. So yes, resurrection, that's one part of the sign, and, and Matthew is the one that puts that in there. And as we'll see, Luke doesn't. But now look what else he puts in here. Something about what Jonah was up to. The men of Nineveh, that's where Jonah went, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And this is what we want to pay attention to. The Gentiles repented at Jonah's preaching. Is that the sign? Is Jonah's preaching the sign? Is the repentance the sign? Because now something greater than Jonah is here. So as we go to Luke, you're going to see the same thing except for one sentence. That's the part about three days in the belly of the earth. And so Luke tells it a little bit differently. So let's go look at Luke. This is where I, the, the one that I wanted you to read. Luke 11, 29 to 32. And you'll hear it's the same thing, but Luke, well, he, he leaves out a sentence and he, he adds something different. So verse 29, as the crowds increase, Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So there's Luke using the phrase, the sign of Jonah. I suppose the, the wicked generation is, they need a sign in order to believe God, right? Your faith isn't strong enough. Why do you need a sign? And the funny thing is, he says, none will be given it, except for this sign right here, which is, it's a large sign. Okay, verse 30. Now, here's where Luke gets unique. Verse 30. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be a sign to this generation. Jonah was a sign. Ah, well, what, did jo what, was, what part of Jonah was the sign to the Ninevites? Now, what I want to do is go down to verse 32. I'm skipping the part about the Queen of the, of the South. I just want to go down to verse 32 because it's the men of Nineveh. And then he says this. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Aha! Something about repentance and the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Because Luke leaves out the part about the resurrection, unless it's embedded in there somewhere, and that could be, that's possible too. We want to look at the Luke one and say, how is the preaching or Jonah the sign or the Gentiles repenting the sign? So, like I said, 
you have multiple opinions and multiple possible signs, it's a very enigmatic statement. Every scholarly article about it you read will see something a little bit different. I think that's the strength, is it's whoever reads this story will find something in it. So if you happen to disagree with this, because I'm going to only show you one thing, or you read someone who tells you a, a different one, then yeah, that's, how, that's what happens when we're studying this, because it's a difficult, Jonah's a difficult book, this is a difficult phrase, it's mysterious. So was Jonah's presence the sign? Was his preaching the sign? Is it the sign that he was in the belly, the belly of, the, of the fish? And the answer is yes, to some, to some extent. So, all right, so what's the sign of Jonah? Well, here's our three options. Was it the resurrection? Is that a sign of Jonah? Yeah, that's according to Matthew, yes. And so all of us will tend to go right to the resurrection. Is it Jonah's preaching? Yeah, that's a, that's a sign too, because that's what Luke tells us and Matthew. Or is it, is it the Gentile repentance? Is it that the Gentiles are repenting and receiving God's mercy? And that is a sign, yes, that's a sign too. So, like I said, the answer's all of the above. And, of course, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But, boy, it, this is a dynamic passage. So, it's difficult even for scholars to pin down. So, there's no end to the, the views that you can see on this. Okay, so let's go. Let's take a look now at the sign of Jonah. One of the things I want to do, and I apologize, I didn't put this on your sheet, is just talk a little bit about the book of Jonah. And boy, it would be nice if we even at some point did a whole study on Jonah, because it's such a dynamic book. It's so small, we tend to become myopic when we look at it. We only look at one part of the story, we know about the big fish being swallowed. And of course, everybody in our scientific age wants to know, did that literally happen? How did that work? How did Jonah survive in the belly? We get focused on that one event. We miss then, what's the whole story telling, talking about? What's the message of Jonah? Why is this such an important book? So a couple things about Jonah that's a little bit strange. First of all, He's a Jewish prophet. He's an Israeli prophet, but he's not a prophet to Israel. He doesn't show up to Israel and say, watch out, God's judgment is coming. He goes to pagans. So he's a prophet to Nineveh. That makes it strange. Nahum is the only other prophet that has an uh, oracle towards Nineveh. So he's not even a prophet of, he's Jewish, but he's not a prophet to Israel. The other thing that makes it quite interesting is it's told as a story. It's a narrative. There's a narrator telling you the story rather than a whole bunch of prophetic oracles. So most prophets like Isaiah will be a whole listing of his oracles. But you don't find that in Jonah. It's, it's written by somebody who's standing off to the side talking about Jonah as a narrator. There's only one prophetic oracle in the entire book. It's five Hebrew words, and that's the oracle to Nineveh. So that, it just makes it a very interesting book, because there's not a lot of oracles. And so then the question is, why did the Jews keep it? What's the message for Israel in a book where Jonah didn't even go to Israel? So what's this message? What's the deeper message? And oh, by the way, they read this book on the Day of Atonement. 
This is one of the critical books for Israel. So there's a message for Israel. It's a message to Israel about something theologically. And I think we miss that when we don't pay attention to the entire book. Jews read this on the Day of Atonement. That's the holiest day of the year. And so you're reading Jonah. So there's something about atonement and repentance and forgiveness. So Jonah is an interesting book. It would be a fun one to do because you, your eyes would get opened up. The more detail you look at Jonah, the more you say, whoa, there's a lot going on in there. Okay, so that's the book of Jonah. I just wanted to give a brief introduction to that. Now, on the, on the back of your handout, uh, I want to talk about what's going to happen here in the story in Mark, what Jesus is doing. Because so often, when Jesus wants to pull an idea from the Old Testament into his ministry, he doesn't do it by saying it. Now, sometimes he does, but often he does it just by acting it out. And when he acts it out, they know exactly what he's doing. Or first century Jewish mind would say, he's acting out Jonah. John the Baptist does the same thing. We'll talk about that, God willing, in a couple weeks. So in the New Testament, you have Old Testament. Obviously, that's the only thing they had. That was their scripture. The New Testament is going to be written in the next few years from the things that are happening in Jesus' ministry. So sometimes you get a direct quote. Someone walks up and asks Jesus a question. He, he quotes directly the text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That's a direct quote. So there's, you, could, you know exactly where he's going there. He gave you a direct quote. But often we get illusions, and that's what we're going to see today. There's all these things happening, and you say, well, wait a minute. If we knew our Old Testament, right, if that was our focus, and we saw all of these things playing out, we would say, ah, that, that sounds just like that book over there in the Old Testament. It's the same story playing out. So you find illusions that are happening. What's even, I just wanted to give you the one last example is an echo. The echoes are even more faint, right? So Jesus' baptism, there's echoes of the creation story, Genesis 1. And you go, no, wait, is that a, they're not quoting it directly, but everything that's happening around the baptism happened in Genesis 1. The sp as the Spirit descended over the watery chaos and a new creation is coming out of the water. Ah, there's an echo happening here. Am I hearing that correctly? And you have to kind of tune your spiritual ears to see if you're hearing the echo correctly. So these are just three ways that the New Testament, Jesus is using his Old Test or his Bible to convey a message. And so that's what we're going to see today as we compare these two stories. So our story, Jesus and his disciples going out on the sea, they're in a storm. Jesus is going to calm the sea. He's going to still the sea. They're on a mission to go to the Gentiles. And the story is full of illusions, and all the illusions come out of Jonah. And so, if you're a first century person, hearing this story told by Mark, you know, that you, you, we wonder, did the disciples get it right away? And it's often difficult anytime you're with you're walking with God, it's difficult in the moment to see what God is doing. 
It's often only when you reflect back on what happened that you start to see, ah, there's the hand of God moving that I didn't notice when it was happening, right? If you're in a boat and you think you're going to drown, you're not thinking about how is this relating to the Old Testament. You're thinking about how do I stay alive tonight or today? So there's going to be illusions. So check this out. This is, this is just, it's so incredible because the, we, I think what is, what's happening here is the message is going to be the same message. In fact, this, this entire story could be the sign of Jonah. Mark never mentions the sign of Jonah. Okay, so let's start out. Jonah, he's on a mission to the Gentiles, right? We've already mentioned that. He's not going to Israel. This isn't a message to Israel, but it's a, it, the book is a message for Israel. So he's on a mission to the Gentiles. What about Jesus? What's his mission in the Mark story? We're going to the other side. We're going to the Gentiles. We're going to take the good news across the sea to go to the Gentiles. So they're on the same mission. There's a boat. Jonah gets in a boat. Does Jesus get in a boat? Yep, he gets in a boat with his disciples. There's a windstorm for Jonah. It says God sent a wind and caused the storm on the sea. That's almost exactly what it says in the New Testament. There's a windstorm. There's a squall that came down, a tempest. The wind was blowing and the waves were rising up. So you can see we're already like, aha, we've got the same story happening. So then we have to mine underneath that to say, is it the same message to get? So here's the one that scholars will immediately say, aha, these are connected. Because when Jonah gets on the boat, what does he do? He goes to sleep. He heads down into the belly of the boat to take a nap. And the, the captain of the ship comes running down. He's like, is this the time to sleep? Is this the time you should be sleeping, Jonah? Well, what did the disciples say? What does Jesus do when they get out in the boat? He goes to sleep in the back of the boat. And you, you kind of think, why is he going to sleep in the back of the boat? He knows his text. He's a rabbi. He's living inside of that Old Testament story. So as they retell it, it brings to mind, through an illusion, something from the Old Testament. So this is one of the main ones right here that people note. Now you can, as you can see, we'll line all of these up and you say, aha, that's Jonah going on. So you've got Gentiles, they get in a boat, there's a windstorm. Now notice it's not perfect because everything's slightly different, but that's not the, that's not the way an illusion works. You allude to it and you, then you go to the deeper meaning. So, all right, let's keep going because there's more. So in the Jonah story, the sailors eventually cry out. They want to be saved. And they're crying out to God. So what happens in the Jesus story? What do the disciples do? Well, the disciples cry out. They want to be saved. Then, and this is the remarkable thing, you get a miraculous stilling of the sea in Jonah. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. And the sailors are like, we don't want to throw you in the sea. You're an innocent man. That makes us murderers. We don't want to do that. Jonah says, throw me in the sea. You know, why didn't Jonah just jump in the sea himself? Why does he insist that they throw him? And the, the, sea, the sea is stilled. Well, what happens in the Jesus story? Now, it's obviously not the same, but Jesus stands up and you get another miraculous 
stilling of the sea. So clearly there's something going on. Now, Jonah, without a doubt, is a precursor to Jesus. There's no doubt. One of the ways we know that is, in the Jonah story, he offers himself as a sacrifice. That's what he tells. He tells the sailors, throw me into the sea, and God will abate his, his wrath. Well, what happens? What's Jesus? If Jonah goes into the sea to save others, what does Jesus do? He offers himself for the salvation of others. So we've got the same the illusion is going on back and forth between Jesus and Jonah. And you know the early church fathers and the early Christians, the symbol of the sign of Jonah or the symbol of Jonah, Jonah and the big fish are all over the catacombs because as they're burying the dead, they want to show the picture of resurrection coming out of the belly of the earth like or the belly of the whale. So Jonah lives large even for the early church fathers. Okay, last one. And and I think this is one of the main messages. In the Jonah story, the sailors end up the pagans. These are Gentiles. They end up praising the God of Israel and offering vows and their sacrifices and making vows to the God of Israel. This is remarkable. So because of Jonah's actions, and his self-sacrifice, the sailors start praising God. Have you heard of this before? Or, I'm sorry, the, the sailors, the Gentiles start praising God. Where have we heard that before? Ah, Jesus. That's a big one, the sailors praising God. Now you have the Gentiles entering this. And what you find throughout Jonah is it's always the Gentiles who end up praising God. Jonah, interestingly enough, is by the time we get to the end, and you'll see in chapter 4 of Jonah, he's bitter and angry. Jonah is, you know, perhaps, and this is one scholarly thought, he's stuck in his ideology that, you know, his ideology that God only will favor Israel. And then he finds out that, nope, God actually has mercy on all of his creation, right? So either way, there's a distinct theme of repentance. And receiving God's mercy, even for the Gentiles. That's a huge message of the book of Jonah and the New Testament. Okay, now check this out because it ah, it goes even deeper. Jonah is going to Nineveh. Now, we don't necessarily think about all of the implications of Jonah going to Nineveh to save them. Nineveh is the enemy of Israel. Nineveh is the seat of the Assyrian Empire. It's the capital city. And the Assyrians were brutal people. They're the ones who came over and destroyed the northern kingdom, took them all into exile. I mean, it was like war for the Assyrians was a sport. And it's the enemy of Israel. And here's Jonah having to go to the enemy to give them a message from God, and they repent. And that's, and he's not happy about that. Well, what's Jesus doing? Who's he going to? And if we, if we think about not only the Decapolis, but Rome, he's going to the Romans, the people who are, are just took your land, right? If the Romans just took your land, if Rome is your enemy, as, as Rome was to many, like the zealots in the first century, are you happy that Jesus is letting them in? Are you happy that Jesus is healing your enemy? 
that he wants you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So you've got pretty much the same thing happening. All right, so in Jonah, one of the main ideas is repentance. The Ninevites repent. That's what Luke says. Because of the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites repent. And because Jesus went across to the Decapolis, what happens? You find repentance. Finally, in Jonah, as we'll read in a minute, Jonah's going to say, God, I knew it. I knew you were a merciful God. That's why I didn't want to go on this trip. I didn't want to take this mission. Because God's mercy is on display with the enemy, with the enemy of Israel. And when you go back to the story we looked at last week in the demon-possessed man, and Jesus sa- he says, hey, Jesus, can I come along with you? And Jesus says, no, go tell everybody how the Lord had mercy on you. God's mercy is put on display by a man whose life is changed. And this is going to be a radical thing that happens in the Decapolis. It's about God's mercy that even the madness of, the, of Rome and the Gentiles and those pagan gods, even they can receive God's mercy. And it can change their life when they repent. So, if we remember last week, the point of Jesus telling the guy, go, t- go tell them how the Lord had mercy on you. And then it says at the very end, Mark uh, 5.20, and everybody in the Decapolis heard about it and, was am- and they were amazed. Now that's Jesus' first traveling to the Decapolis. What happens the next time he gets to the Decapolis? There's huge crowds waiting for him. He shows up the next time, the feeding of the 4,000, and there's a great crowd waiting for Jesus. Is it possible because of one man, one man who was healed, who experienced God's mercy, the next time Jesus shows up there, there's huge crowds. That's an incredible thing for the witness of one person to spread like that. So let me show you. Don't turn there because I'm watching the time. In Matthew, it's the lead-in to um, the feeding of the 4,000. So when Jesus shows up the second time in the Decapolis, Matthew starts out like this. It's Matthew 15, 30, and 31. And he says, as Jesus shows, it's him showing back up into the Decapolis, great crowds came to him. Huge crowds of people. How did they know about Jesus? One guy who had his life changed. And what did they do? They brought the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and others and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. And this is amazing. The people are amazed at that, right? And the, the best sentence right here for, from Matthew is this final little ver- sentence, and they praised the God of Israel. Notice, it's not just that they praise God. Which God are they praising? The God that's over there, that God. Part of the Jonah story and part of the Jesus story is many people in the ancient East thought their gods to be local. You go to that, if you go, if you travel to a different area, you find out which God is local to that. So if you go to Israel, who's your God? Well, it's, it's Yahweh God, but he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. And so no matter where you go, notice when they say they praise the God of Israel, they're pointing to that God over there. And that's a remarkable thing because you see now those Gentiles are repenting. 
There's a lot in this. There's a lot, as you can see, there's a lot going on in this story. Here's what I want to finish on. I want to go and read a little bit from Jonah because we need to figure out where's the moral of the story in Jonah. So if you turn to the book of Jonah, hopefully you've put a little marker there, again, between Obadiah and Micah, if that helps at all. And we want to read chapter 4. So we all know chapter 2. Chapter 2 is in the belly of the giant fish. But chapter 4 explains the whole book. And it's so important, and we, we, one, we have to remember, there's no oracles to Israel, but the book is meant to give Israel a message. So we want to know, what's the, what's the message to Israel? And then we want to say, what about us? How are we, Jonah? What's the message for us? that comes out of Jonah. So if we start at verse, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. And one thing that's really important to notice is there, is there was a previous conversation that Jonah had with God that's not in the book, but he's going to mention it here in a minute. So verse 1 in chapter 4, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now what he's angry about is God forgave the Ninevites, he changed his mind. Now, why is, why is Jonah angry? Some scholars think that he's angry because if he's a prophet, if you're a prophet and you say doom is coming and the doom doesn't show up, that makes you a false prophet. He doesn't want to be a false prophet. So that's one thought. But there's another thought. Well, what if his ideology, what if he's stuck in an ideology that says, how dare my God forgive the enemy, forgive those people? And now he's angry that God is acting. Look what he says in verse 2, though. He prayed to the Lord, and he says, isn't this what I said, Lord? So notice he's referring back to a previous conversation. Lord, isn't this when I, what I said when I was still at home? So apparently, when Jonah got his initial call to go to Nineveh, he had a conversation with God and said, I don't want to go do that. And then he says, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He wants to forestall the fact that God is going to forgive the enemy. Because here's what he says, still in verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, these, these words right here, you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That comes from the attributes of God in, in Exodus 34. So part of the Jonah story is looking at those attributes of God. That God's a merciful God. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you would forgive the enemy. And I didn't want to go to Nineveh. And then, of course, look at verse 3. Jonah says, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. I mean, this is how angry Jonah is. He's so upset. Now, that the crux to this is the very next verse. So, Jonah 4.4. 4. God's going to ask Jonah a question. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, 
Is it your ideology, Jonah, of how my mercy works, of how I act towards my creation? Is that what's causing you to be upset? Do you have the right to be angry? Is it me that's wrong, or is it perhaps your thinking about me that's incorrect? You know, that'll go right to the heart of, uh uh-oh, did I just place a limitation on God, right? Did Jonah's limitation, or did Jonah's ideology place a limitation on God, and then because he believed it, and then God proved him wrong, he now is angry? And that tends to be what happened. If someone has a, if they're stuck in an ideology, I think Carl Jung calls it being possessed by an ideology. If you're stuck in an ideology, and this even happens in our political world, you walk up and tell the truth to that person. How do they respond to you? Are they happy that you just corrected their, their fault? Or are they angry that you just pointed out the deficiency in their thinking? And it's usually angry because they have to now update the map that's in their head. So this is a really important piece. Why is Jonah angry? So what happens next, and we're not going to read it, but God gives an object lesson, a plant. He grows a plant up and provides Jonah shade, and then he kills the plant the very next day. And this object lesson is trying to help Jonah see and get on, on, on the side of God's compassion. Now, I want to read the last couple verses of uh, Jonah. It's actually verse, through verse 11, 9 through 11. I put verse 9 and 10. This is where God's going to question Jonah again about the plant. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So now Jonah's still angry about the plant. And Jonah responds to God, it is. So Jonah's angry and says, yes, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's how angry I am. I don't even want to have to live through this. And now this, uh, this, this is another strange thing about Jonah. Jonah ends with a question. It's a question that's never answered. You're left, to, the people, the reader, is left to answer the question. So God says, the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have great concern, or concern for the great city of Nineveh? That's the question. Shouldn't we have concern for Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left? They don't know which way to go, Jonah. Go help them. And then, again, the, the strangest thing about the book is it ends with that question about the animals. So, what's going on? We've got repentance. We've got Gentiles. We've got an issue where, where Jonah is upset. And I want you to think about, so much of our New Testament is dealing with the same issues. Paul is really upset. And many scholars think what Paul is upset about is Jesus wants Gentiles to come into the synagogue. That's where you get the verse in Acts where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you try, does it hurt to kick against the goads? Ah, that's a reference to Jonah. You don't want to take this mission. And oh, by the way, because you don't like the Gentiles, I'm going to give you a mission to send you to the Gentiles, Paul. And now what? And you can see almost the entirety of Paul's argument is, Jesus wants the Gentiles to come in. 
And so often what makes the Jews upset is not that Jesus is Messiah, but that he wants the Gentiles to come in. And Paul is debating with them about the Gentiles can receive God's mercy as well. So here's some questions I think are some important questions because they come out of this story. And especially if, G- if Jesus is intending to show the disciples something, who's, how far does God's mercy extend is the question. Because his disciples, Peter, James, John, they're calling down, they want to call down uh, fire and brimstone on the Samaritans. Peter doesn't want to eat with Gentiles. Um, there's a big lesson here. So Jesus takes them to the other side, extends God's mercy, even to the the people who might be your enemy, and says, that's what the love of God is all about. So some questions that would come out of this would look like this. If the worst sinners repent, will God forgive them, right? Now, the answer, of course, we know theologically, yes. And Jonah knows it, but he's not happy about it, because what if it's your enemy that repents? Are you going to be happy? Are the Israelites willing to have God forgive their enemy? And now that becomes a little bit different. It's not just that guy over there who repented. It's my enemy. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to have our God forgive the enemy? Then, if we're made in the image of God, are the Israelites willing to forgive their enemy? This is what Je- part of Jesus' message. Forgive those who hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't hate them and then attack them. Forgive them and recognize that God's compassion extends to them as well. So the, the question for us is, are we able to do that? That's a, it's a self-reflective exercise here. And then, finally, does, do the Israelites really understand God's mercy? Did Jonah fully understand God's mercy? And probably not. And it looks like even the disciples have a hard time understanding God's mercy, as Jesus has to go repeatedly show them. And then the question for us is, do we understand God's mercy? How might we be limiting God's mercy? Uh, I know I've said this before, but, you know, my prayer is always, God, help me not limit you through my own limitations. Right? I want to see a bigger God. I don't want a God that fits in my mind. I want a God that is going to be a mystery. It makes, the, it makes walking in faith much more exciting when I don't know things about God. You don't want a God that fits in my head, that's for sure. Okay, so back to the sign of Jonah. Is it the resurrection? Absolutely. No doubt. That's a, that's a sign to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles repent. But is it also Jonah's preaching? And the fact that the the Gentiles are repenting and that God's mercy extends far beyond Israel. And the answer would be yes, yes, and yes, of course. So if we go back to our main points, you get this entire story. You get in a boat. You go to the other side. There's a storm. There's something in the text about a sign of Jonah. And then if we start comparing Jonah to the story in Mark, you see all these allusions to it. And then we have to go and then mine the message of Jonah. What's the book? Why why is that kept in the canon? Why is it read every day of atonement? And there's a whole bunch we can learn from that. So 
You have the message of Jonah, of course, the sign of Jonah. So hopefully we're able to, after talking four weeks about that um, story in Mark, hopefully we're able to funnel that in and see how this, the allusions to the Old Testament reflect then Jesus' own ministry and then challenge us to our own thinking about God's mercy and how far it extends. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.